And okay. so she uh, wanted to open up a spot a, on, okay. on the west side a in the side. community. Nice. Right. Real nice. Ready? Mm-hmm. ready? Welcome to another episode of In My Own Words. I'm your host, Corey Timms, and with me I have my friend and mentor, state senator and Senate Majority Leader, Kimberly Leifert. Senator, Hi. thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's a pleasure. You know, when I um, initially started thinking about who I wanted to interview, uh, your name rose to the top of the list. Hey, well, all right, then. <laughs> Amen. One shout out for Corey. <laughs> and I think that you, you have such an inspiring story, and I wanted to be able to provide a platform platform to give leaders that I look up to and respect an opportunity to be able to share those stories. So I'm really excited for today's interview. I'm glad. I'm glad you thought of me and you have been on the move since we met. <laughs> so I'm just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> so before we go into our lightning round questions, since I have you, I got to ask. In 1998, you were mm-hmm. the youngest person elected to the Illinois Senate. Now we fast forward 21 years later, and in 2019, you made Illinois history again and became the first African-American female Senate Majority Leader. Mm -hmm. How does it feel knowing that, one, your legacy is cemented in history, Mm -hmm. and two, you have inspired a generation of leaders that are coming up behind you that look to you and your story, um, and it serves as an inspiration for what you can become um, and what you can ultimately do? Well, you starting strong, Corey. That's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I have no less of expectation of you. Um, let me just, let's see if I can phrase that this way. Okay. Um, um, I'm the first in my family to go to college, and I come from an abusive home. So I'm pretty amazed with the accomplishments that I've been able to make, honestly. I just feel like... Um, I was able to, you know, maintain and grow through the midst of that mm-hmm. to a place where um, I began to pray and dream about um, not wanting to feel the way I was feeling as a little girl and not wanting anyone else to feel that way. Just didn't know how to departmentalize trauma mm-hmm. or didn't know what trauma really was or the definition of what I was feeling. But I knew I wanted to help. I, I wanted help. And I wanted to help. And so I prayed to God. I begged him, you know, please help me. And if you help me, God, I'm I'm going to help other people. And then as I began to get older, my prayer uh, was constantly modified, right? <laughs> so now you, you know more, you do more, right? So now my prayer grew from not just helping little girls like me, but anyone who was was in need of help. They were poor, underprivileged. Um, they were praying. They just needed help. I even began to pray for my foes. and um, That's powerful. Yes, and I wanted to keep my promise to God. I wanted to make sure that I was in a position where I could make things happen for other people. And it took a lot of discipline and a lot of focus to, um, even when the load gets heavy at times, just mm-hmm. to stay committed and to my promise to do the best that I can to help other people. And and so I'm really just excited that my life has come and my career has come full circle to be um, a person that a leader like you can say, hey, I've watched you and um, you're cemented in history. And that's like, 
wow, that's not what I thought of at seven years old, uh-huh. right? But to be sitting here um, as an Illinois Senate Majority Leader, it's like, wow, you know, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are doing it, let me say. Amen. <laughs> so before we get into the meat of the interview, I like to do a lightning round of questions. Okay. Most Thank people you. really enjoy the lightning round. Okay, um, so you tell me the first answer that comes to your head. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Drew Hill or Boys to Men? Neither, <laughs> neither. I'm I'm more of a uh, first concert, new edition girl, okay. Johnny okay. Gill. Put on your red dress. You know, I'm Isley Brothers, uh-huh. Frankie Beverly and Maze. Okay. You know, I, you know. <laughs> so so neither. I got you. <laughs> you know, you can't get boys and men without new edition. That that's true. That's true. You know, and I don't, I can't remember where Drew Hill came from, but he was cool. But I. Had I had already put on my red dress, and I was already happy feeling, and I was already in there. <laughs> Second is uh, uh, Aretha Franklin or Patti LaBelle? Oh, of course, Auntie Riri. Okay. Now, I love me some Patti. <laughs> I, I love Patti, but I think the background of Miss Aretha Franklin and her, her legacy and her um, civil, you know, um, being a part of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and when you listen to her music during that time it's just so compelling of the struggle she was describing as a black woman yeah. um and because she was gospel yet she was mainstream and 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 you know and her dad being a minister i just think her story is um really admirable and her voice is just just beyond beautiful okay uh, favorite movie of all time? <laughs> A movie. Okay, hold on, hold on for this one. Okay, okay. Car wash. Really? Car wash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Now we're going to have fun. Car wash. And you know why? I'm, when I'm telling you, I was the same little girl and we went to see Car Wash. Mm-hmm. And it had to be like the first movie in the theater with the popcorn and my whole family. And I mean, it was Richard Pryor. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, it was it was the emotions. It was the point of sisters. It was performance. Yep. Yep. It was funny. It, you know, it had some it had the the corrections perspective in it and the struggles we have in the community it had mm. relationships it was entertaining so i mean i it's been a lot of good movies okay. and it's a lot that i love but i don't know <laughs> if any of them touch me like Kawash did <laughs> and last question is uh who's a leader you look up to and why mm. so for me that would be my mother, my my queen, okay. my Foxy B. She's the original <laughs> queen B. And in order for me to kind of departmentalize her leadership um, is from the leadership of Dr. Maya Angelou, who taught me what a phenomenal woman was. And I thought, wow, that's my mother. Yeah, And then... I went a little deeper into Maya and got to still our eyes. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, again, she's describing the resiliency of my mother and everything that my mother's sewing into me, even as a broken woman herself. Um, And then I was educated a little bit more from 
the founders of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Shout being, out to Delta Sigma Theta. Hey, that's my, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were college women yeah. during the early 1900s. And they were so strong on on sisterhood, and they were so strong on public service and loving. So that whole giving side of my mother, I was able to see it mm-hmm. and, and and shape it. And the and her love and her warmth and everything she was teaching me was that sisterhood side. So it was like because of these other leaders, I was able to see my mother mm-hmm. and. Um, my mother, you know, I admire her. You know, um, she's my treasure. That's my queen, Foxy mm-hmm. B. <laughs> I learned everything that I know of how to be a woman and be classy. And, and I'll tell you more about it, I'm sure, as we go. But it's definitely my mother. I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for humoring me for the, for the lightning round. It wasn't too yeah. bad, right? No. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. It actually kind of, after that first question, <laughs> broke the ice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I like to start the interviews talking about upbringing because I think it's mm-hmm. such a critical time in any leader's life. It shapes who you are. So mm-hmm. you you grew up in your district, um, mm-hmm. originally from the west side and then lived in uh, grew up in Maywood, Illinois. And so talk to me a little bit about how um, how Maywood shaped you into who you are and ultimately in your into your desire to serve. Nice question. So growing up in Maywood, um, my family moved to Maywood when I was four years old. Mm -hmm. So I had been in preschool when I was three and four with Jimmy and Joan. I love my preschool teachers, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And speaking of my mother, my mother was a a stay-at-home mom, so she took me to school, and she was one of those parents that stayed. So my mother was with me Mm -hmm. through school. So when we moved to Maywood, you know, that little ride on the Eisenhower from from Grandshaw and Independence to Ninth uh, Avenue <laughs> just seems so long, yeah, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I remember laying on my mother's chest, sad, didn't want to leave my friends mm-hmm. and didn't want to leave all my family on the west side. And then we got to this cute little house and, you know, me and my sisters had a bedroom to share and things like that. We had grass in the front and the back, you know, and... <laughs> You know, it was really quiet, you know, and I thought, wow, this could be different. Mm -hmm. But then once I started school and started making friends, I really loved my upbringing in Maywood. I had so much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenges that I was being um, dealt with at home, I was able to go into a space with great teachers and teachers who recognized that there had to be something more happening. and to embrace me and try to pull that out of me. Um, And then I began to be so active by the fourth grade. So if I wasn't, you know, cheerleader, student council, track, volleyball, softball, you know, I I did it all just Mm -hmm. to stay busy, you know. And those things really helped build the the leadership and build that character um, up. I, I didn't know that what I was doing but it really helped to do that and then in the midst of that I had like great friends and we all went from grammar school to high school together and we kept that friendship and then build on new friends that you meet from other 
you know, primary uh, grade schools. Mm -hmm. And we're all very close today. So Proviso East, all day long, Maywood, you know, I'm, all I'm day Proviso long. West, but you know. You Proviso West, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we still did that basketball thing on y'all every year. <laughs> so, you know, Proviso East, Maywood, uh, I, I just think fun. I think loving. Yeah. I think um, educational. I just, I, I wouldn't change my upbringing. And then I, I'm blessed to that my mother and my grandmother, and my great grandmother on both sides of my family were so instrumental in keeping that West side, yeah. you know, um, in me. So every weekend I'm on the West side, every summer I'm on the West side holidays where, you know, it's, it's the next home. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of my friends that I had on the West side was cool too. So I had like a different set of friends over here mm -hmm. and different. So it was like a lot to learn from different segments and things that we learned in Maywood. We go teach our girlfriends on the West side and things they taught us on the West side. We brought it back to the yep. neighborhood, you know, <laughs> so it was, it was a blast. And I, I enjoy my growing up. Okay. So you you talked about Proviso East. So you, mm -hmm. you went to Proviso East and yes. then you went to Western Illinois University and got your bachelor's in public communications mm -hmm. and went on to um, the University of Illinois at Springfield and got your master's of public administration. Um, I think so many people know you as, you know, Senator, Senator Kimberly Lightford, but you actually got your start working for the uh, Illinois Department of Corrections. I did. So I talk did. to us a little bit about what got you into um, the criminal justice and mm -hmm. ultimately, like, what, what were you doing with the Department of Corrections? Oh, that's good. To, that's uh, another good one. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, Corey, I, um, after undergrad school, I started working for the Secretary of State. So okay. I was there. Um, for about three years. And then um, I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I got to graduate school, I had figured out all these student loans. I would be in debt <laughs> all my life. So um, I applied for an internship called a Gypsy Graduate Public Service Intern. Mm -hmm. And um, I was interviewed by the director of a department of communications. Now, this guy was so stressed out, and he was depressed, and he kept holding his head, and he's like, I need this, I need that, I need this person to do this and that. And I was thinking, oh, it's not going to be me. I can't, I, I won't have that internship. So I declined that offer. Um, probably, I, probably the right decision. It was the right decision. <laughs> so now I'm at my second interview, and it was with another uh, department, but it was the chief of staff of the director. And the chief of staff says, "Well, she, you know, she can be needy at times, and and you know, she she's a little bossy, mm -hmm. you know, and and she's a little, you know." And I'm thinking. And she wants you, you know, you'll be more like her gopher kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this definitely is not the job for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're describing for me a, an environment <laughs> that may not be conducive. To who I am and what I want to do. <laughs> At all. So I thought, okay, I'll pass on this one. Mm -hmm. Still not wanting to take out student loans, so I went back to the GPSI coordinator who happened to be a soror, and her name was Terry Jackson. Rest in peace, Terry. Love her to death. And she says, well, there's one more position, and it's at the Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. You know, go over there and interview for it. And I said, okay. So I get over there, and they say, well, 
It's opening mail. It's answering the phone. It's signing a director's name like over and over and over again. Yep. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> now, why you, got, you? you got me. <laughs> now, why you? I'm in my like mid, late 20s because I worked for a few years before I went to graduate school. Right, right. And I'm thinking, I was at the Secretary of State in a management position for three years, and now I'm going to be opening mail for mm-hmm. the Department of Corrections and answering the phone. So I challenged myself intentionally to get to the director. How do I get to the director of that department? I'm in the director's office. I'm the last person on the totem pole opening mail. Mm-hmm. How am I going to get the director to notice me so that I can do more things in the management space? Yep. And so corrections is a really a stiff agency. And I had not seen the director, and I'd been there for about four or five weeks. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm not, you know, seeing the director. And then one day it was kind of quiet, and everybody was like, shh, shh, shh. You know, I walk in, good morning, like, shh. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, the director's here. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to see. I'm going to meet the director. <laughs> and sure enough, the director saw me while past, and he said so, come, for me to come into his office. And they all like, the director want to see you. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm thinking it's cool. <laughs> I go in and the director's like, what's your name? And I said, it's Kimberly. Nice to meet you, sir. And he says, your your name, your full name, Kimberly Lightford? No, your full name. I said, you want to know my middle name? <laughs> <laughs> Why, director? <laughs> and we hit it off. <laughs> I said, Kimberly Ann Lightford. I said, I have my mother's middle name. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, okay. So I began to talk to the director and tell him what I was doing at the Secretary of State and why I was in graduate school and and what what my ideas were while at Corrections. I was studying in the space of um, the electronic monitoring program. Mm -hmm. I was drafting for Corrections what that could look like during my dissertation. And so I began to unfold some things to him and... It was nothing but heaven sent, um, just being in the right place with the right people at the right time, spiritually led, because then um, he says, well, you care about young people. That's a passion for you. I would like for you to represent me at the meetings for the Illinois Association of Park Districts, for the big boys, uh, big brother and big sisters of America, the uh, Boys and Girls Club, you know, of America. Mm -hmm. So it's Big Brother, Big Sister, Boys and Girls Club of America, the Association Park Districts, and then also the Illinois Association of Recreation and Dance. And this is just upon you guys' meeting. Yeah, this was after we met. He challenged me. He um, had a speaking engagement, and he told me to write him a speech. Mm -hmm. And so they had a big file where all his previous speeches. Mm -hmm. So I did my research. I was in grad school, so I was was on it. So I did all my research looking at speeches he'd done in other places around similar subjects. And I I drafted a speech for him, and he thought my speech was pretty good, and I put in an outline form for him. And then after that, he... He was there maybe a few weeks later. He asked me something again. He asked me to see my paper. You know, he just took an interest, which was a blessing for me because I told him when I first met him, you know, I don't mind signing your name, but do you have a stamp? (laughs) 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 It's a lot of, you know, and so we got to laugh again. So I think sometimes it's people want to know your heart. Yeah. And they want to know, like, 
like who you are and where you come from to be able to determine whether or not they could trust that they can give you those extra assignments mm-hmm. or take you outside of the scope. And once he knew my background and, and, and we met and had several conversations, he um, began to put me in places that helped me shape my passion and what I wanted to do. And and although it started with criminal justice reform and the juveniles that were in the Department of Corrections, it ended up being, you know, so much larger than that. Yeah. And and I just, I had no idea yep. what I was headed for. So let's fast forward a little bit. So now you are 30 years old and you are uh, <laughs> still with the Illinois Department of Corrections and you're also at this point uh, elected trustee in the village of Maywood. Mm-hmm. And you hear the news that your predecessor, Senator Earlene Collins, is retiring. And I'm sure folks are encouraging you at this point to throw your name into the hat and run. And you're probably doing all the the thinking that any candidate does, right? Can I do this? Can I raise the money? Do I have enough profile? Is is the timing right? Um, Talk to us a little bit about the process and determining whether or not you were gonna run and what ultimately uh, made you decide to throw your name into the hat. Well, There was no process. <laughs> there was no process. You want me to do what? <laughs> and so, um, honestly, after I graduated with the master's and returned home in, in 96 um, and ran for trustee mm-hmm. and had that uh, experience there, um, I I still knew that I needed and wanted something more and different. Yeah. And so I left the Department of Corrections and I ended up at the Department of Central Management Services. And I was on the management team there for the business enterprise program. Back then it was called MAFME, Minorities and Female Business Enterprise Program. And so as I was doing that, I began to learn of inequities and I began to understand what the majority and the minority meant. Mm-hmm. And and, and a little bit more of what that meant to state budgets and procurement processes and things of that nature. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, you know, racism is real at all levels. Everywhere I've been in state government, it's just constantly smacking me in the face, you know, just these racist patterns and practices, mm-hmm. you know, that's embedded in how we live. They it, it governs how we live, you know. And so recognizing all of the s- systemic racist patterns and behaviors from the Secretary of State to the Department of Corrections, now at Central Management Services, I thought, wow, what an opportunity mm-hmm. to actually be able to use this experience that I've gathered and be able to go make a change to improve my community and yeah. our living conditions, right? Um, and so I, I was asked to run. Um, I called my auntie up and um, and I told her, you know, I was asked to run and and she says, well, where are you going to get the money, you know, from Bay? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like campaigns are expensive. Right. She's like, where are you going to get the people from? I'm like, I don't know. I just know I know how to work hard. I know how to fundraise. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that time, not to this level of fundraising, you know, nowadays, just remember we were back in 1997 at yeah. this time, right? And so I'm like, she said, well, let's do it. Let's go for it. I'm like, Ab, she said, you want to do it? I said, yes. Like, honestly, what do I have to lose? 
you know, for me, it was everything to gain. It was opportunity. Mm -hmm. It was me preparing myself. It was first impressions of the people who asked me to run. It was being in the right place, doing the right thing that I thought my ancestors, you know, had, had you know, wanted me to do. Yeah. You know, I, I felt like I was doing everything that I was told to do. And now here comes this opportunity. And if I pass it up, will it ever come back my way? Mm -hmm. And so I just took a stab at it. You know, I had Still I Rise license plates yeah. on my brand new car that I got myself for a master's graduation. Mm -hmm. And I said, if I'm turning in Still I Rise license plates, they're going to be for that number four that says <laughs> official Senate. <laughs> so that's really my long and short. I was naive. I had no idea mm -hmm. um, of, of politics um, and, and what that meant, but I, I, I knew I was prepared and that I was willing to work hard for it. So now you're you're 30 years old, mm -hmm. you're in the Illinois Senate, mm -hmm. um, and you're navigating spaces that traditionally don't look like you or I. Um, and I'm sure folks are underestimating you based on your age, race, gender. Um, how did you navigate being a young African-American female uh, state senator um, and being able to navigate those those spaces successfully? I don't I don't know that I was having success. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew that my mother did not like politics, didn't you know, when we first moved on the block, we were the third black family on the block in Maywood. And as we were growing up, she got involved with the black club, mm -hmm. you know, and she was a secretary and and, you know, and she would help put on the, the black club parties and do things. And so I thought she was okay with it. But when I started running, she was like, you know, you're really not like this. This is not politics is dirty. And, you know, I, I really don't want you to do this. Yeah. And I'm like, Mom, really? <laughs> 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 Wait a minute. <laughs> so um, I told her, you know, that I felt politics would be what you make it. And that, you know, I'm not dirty. There's no need to be dirty, you know. And um, she told me to uh, just mind your business and do the work. Mm -hmm. So that's all I remember from that conversation was that politics was dirty, but I didn't have to be dirty yep. to mind my own business and do the work. Mm -hmm. And so my mother's advice, you know, really helped root me in here you are in this place, you're very different from anyone else. Yeah. You're being overlooked. You're being underestimated. You'll make a comment and no one hears you. Someone will come behind you and say the same thing. Mm -hmm. And now it's a great idea. Um, and then the support system from the older African-American community of legislators that you would think would be readily available for you because mm -hmm. you've done all the right things was not available. Yeah. And then you've always had the most ridiculous South Side, West Side divide. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, all my friends in college were from the South Side, you know, from the West Side, from Provisor, from the Boogie, from yeah. East St. Louis. <laughs> I mean, hey, it didn't matter, you uh -huh. know, where you were from. So I didn't understand all the division, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I just... 
I just took the advice of my mother and just kept my head down and just did the work. And when I got wins, I was happy to receive them. The betrayals and all the challenges, I guess they would just help prepare me for the next win. Yeah. Yes, just to prepare me for the next win. Okay. Speaking of wins and and, and losses, um, one of the things that, and it's really a, one of the premises behind the show is to be able to not only celebrate the successes and the accolades, but be able to also talk about some of the tough moments, some of the struggles and the losses. And in um, 2020, you pursued um, the Senate presidency after uh, former Senate President uh, Cullerton retired um, and uh, you were unsuccessful in the bid. Um, talk, talk to us about how, um, how you were able to grapple with, with such a public loss. Um, and ultimately still um, be passionate about state Senate um, and, you know, still a leader and a trailblazer in the Senate. Well, I, um, I feel like when it happened um, that I was having an out-of-body experience, I just didn't understand what all was happening. And then it came to me quickly, the portrayal and some of the things that took shape. And I had never lost a race before. Mm -hmm. And this was a different kind of race because this wasn't a race of your constituency. You know, this was a race, an inside race of, of, of your colleagues judging whether or not you ought to be in this leadership role. Mm -hmm. And so I always knew that it was a very different race. And all I knew for me was that I had worked really hard and built myself up to a place where I was the first black woman Senate majority leader yeah. in the state. And I knew that I enjoyed the level of responsibility and that I could be a really good president of the Senate. And so not winning that race didn't mean that all the years that I had spent um, uh in my passion and champion education and raising the minimum wage three times mm -hmm. and, you know, champion from preschool to, you know, uh, to higher education issues, yep. um, just being on the front line for the Black Caucus and creating, you know, things to happen. Um, there, I felt like I kicked the ceiling in. I wasn't successful, but I, I showed some other women and young girls on how they too can rise to a place um, unbeknownst to them that they would get there and then have the opportunity to go for the number one spot. Yeah. Like no one would have told me at 30 that I, when I first arrived there mm -hmm. to a place where I was never even acknowledged yeah. often that I would be running for the number one seat. So for me, it was just opportunity mm -hmm. and it was the same opportunity as before like you want me to do what <laughs> you know let's go let's do this and so um i was i was disappointed of course but it it doesn't subtract who i am it doesn't take away um all that i've contributed and what i still have to offer yeah and so moving forward for me was more important and to leave the legislature on my own terms when yeah. i'm ready to leave the legislature when my constituency says you know we're not pleased with your performance then that's when i'll leave the legislature not right. from losing an inside race right and, and speaking about some of your accomplishments um, that you're, you're talking about, you talked about raising the minimum wage, 
during so you served as a joint black caucus chair from 2015 to 2021 and during your tenure uh the black caucus released a four pillar legislative agenda um, that focused on um, criminal justice reform education economic equity and health care and you actually were the chief co-sponsor for house bill 2170 under the education pillar um talk a little bit about what ultimately made you guys decide to do the, the, the pillar agenda um, and why at that moment was it so critical? You know, um, the George Floyd murder was at a time when we were all across the world was on shutdown. Mm -hmm. It's the pandemic, you know, that nobody understand, nobody knows. So stay at home. Yeah. So everyone's staying at home and they're all watching TV and they're all listening to the media. Mm -hmm. There's not many other outlets. You cannot leave your house. Then we witness George Floyd. We, we witness this man's, you know, knee on this guy's neck, a brother, until he can't breathe, yeah. right? And um, we begin as a caucus to have, and um, we have what we call a joint caucus, Corey, um, outside of just the Illinois Senate, it's comprised of all levels of government. Um, so there is um, federal uh, officers who are uh, elected officials that are part of our joint commission, their city, county, state, all levels of government. And so we begin to do these, you know, um, go around from the south side to the west side to the west suburbs to the south suburbs having days of action mm -hmm. and um you know the senate president attended the governor attended and they attended all four of them yeah. you know and you know we're saying we want more money you know for black communities and and we're debating you know these police brutality and we're you know these lived experiences that we have um i just felt like that was not enough i i just we can't stop on, you know, chanting about what has to change. We're the change agents. We yeah. want to see the change. We have to be the change agent. And so I had no idea what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I knew that there was more that had to be done, that must be done, that shall be done. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an option. But here we are at this time in history where we have to cease this moment everybody's watching. We have to be on one accord. So I called um, one of our educators um, and I said, um, God's given me a vision, you know, and, and it happens to me all the time that, you know, I need to do more. And I said, and I, I, I'm not exactly sure where to get started or how to get it started because it's so big in my mind on what we need to do. And so I requested that the Black Caucus Foundation host the caucus, a education, you know, um, summit, a retreat, mm -hmm. so that I could, you know, galvanize their support around this thing that I didn't know what that thing was or what it was going to be. Yeah. But let me throw out to them what I'm feeling and thinking and let me learn from the caucus what they're feeling and thinking. And then in my leadership role, let me shape it. Right. And so um, I just asked them the question, what is impeding the success of the black community? Why, why are we 
50 years later from what MLK was saying, and it's still happening. Why Still talking about the same issues. The same issues. Why, why is this happening? You know, so it was kind of like having a dartboard where you're just throwing out things that, you know. And so we just, we were throwing. We were throwing. And that board was just filling up and filling up and filling up and filling up. And I told the caucus, I just need you all to trust me. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I promise you, you give me a couple days, let me pray on this, think on this, figure this out, and I just need you to trust me. So I took all everything that we talked about and started categorizing it. Yeah. And then I came back to the caucus, and I said, this sounds all like criminal justice issues, this is all education, this is all in the healthcare medical space, and this is all in, in economic development, the economics, you know, what's, you know, your family's not making, your parents is broke, you yeah. know, we, we grow up poor. Thank God my mother was so amazing. I didn't even know I was poor for a long time. <laughs> but, you know, why, why, why are generations of children constantly be, being born in poverty? Yeah. You know, and the concentrated poverty that exists in the black community. And so I took back and I shared with my colleagues in the caucus the breakdown. And then I said, let's come up with headings and we're going to call them our pillars. Mm -hmm. And so literally the pillar system was born with these headings, with these items underneath. And then I said, "Okay, now we need to be very strategic on how we manage this because we're in a pandemic. The Senate is the only um, chamber that is allowed to have standard structured meetings on Zoom. Mm. The House didn't have an avenue to even convene at that time. And the Speaker at that time had never acknowledged the movement. He never said, I support the Black Caucus. He never support, said, I'm sorry about what happened to George Floyd. Just nothing came from the Speaker. Mm -hmm. So it was um, uh, an, an idea of how do we maneuver in this space because we are on the brink of solving systemic challenges that are embedded in our state government, that are embedded in the very policies and the procedures that we enact as state legislators. Mm -hmm. So we have a serious job to do. I took it very serious. I spent 12-hour days for eight months sitting at that computer, sitting on Zoom, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting until we had all of the pillars in place. We had um, national experts come in. We Mm -hmm. we did a three-day retreat. We had national experts on every subject we had, and we took their feedback. We sent them ours. They sent it back. You know, we did this and this. You know, we did the push and pull for Mm -hmm. a while. And all I asked the caucus to do was to keep it to yourself. If you ain't never kept a secret before (laughs) i need you to do it right now (laughs) this is the time no pillow talking no pillow talk if you feel like you just gotta tell somebody call me up anytime and tell me what you feel because the minute you let the press get a hold to this or the media or the capital facts or Mm -hmm. any other fraction and, and what we're trying to do, get out, opposition is going to build so quickly over this thing that yeah. we wouldn't even have time to complete our task of building it, yeah. right? And so we stayed together. We stayed together, never leaked out. I was able to tell the press anytime they would direct the press, call Kim, call our chairman, and I would tell them we're working on it. Mm-hmm. What are y'all doing? What is it going to consist of? We're, we're working, working on, on it. it. 
you know, well, what what is going to consist of? The black community. Mm-hmm. That's it. Our agenda. The Illinois Legislative Black Caucus agenda to rid Illinois systemic racism. That's what we have. Our agenda. How did you get... Um because there's so many different voices, especially in the Black Caucus, um, different interests. Um, folks have di- represent different communities and constituencies. How did you get folks to kind of corral around? These are these are the pillar areas, and ultimately, these are the um, specific um, nodes that we're going to focus on. Um, it's as a part of the legislation. Well, because we've been working. Um, we had already had subcommittees already established over different headings and topics. And so it was very easy to say, okay, the co-chairs of these subcommittees, you know, who else want to be a part of that? And it took a lot of work. I mean, mm-hmm. we spent hours and hours on this stuff of, of having meetings to say, okay, here's your area. Now you guys go you know, do your thing, come back and report back. I mean, this was weekly. This yeah. this was done weekly, you know, over over a three-month period just to get the initial bones and get it, you know, really to a place where we could like, okay, here, now look at this. What do you think, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we were able to do on our second round of the same advocates that we had worked with initially. Okay, so now this is where we are. Did we miss anything? Did, you know, we, we talked to a number of professors and, you know, high level, high educated people. You know, what is the history telling you? What, what, what are we missing in mm-hmm. this space, right? And so, um, and, and so that back and forth gave us that clarity that we needed. Now, um, unbeknownst to me in the education space, many members felt that we had just passed the evidence-based funding model and that there wasn't much to do in education. I said, are you kidding me? Oh, my <laughs> God, <laughs> right? And so I'm, we're going to take education from preschool to high school to workforce development, and we're going to rip that apart. Absolutely. And we're going to use the advocacy groups who constantly get renewed grants over and over again to explain to us why they're not moving our children. Mm-hmm. Right? I, let them tell us what it is that we need to do to better help them yeah. move our children. Yeah. Right? So it was a system of... All of the time that I had spent in the legislature, I felt like it just had all came to that moment where I knew what to do mm-hmm. and I knew how to do it. I just needed the caucus to believe in me and to 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 give me that support and rally around me. And then once they start seeing it happen and they saw what was shaping up, the enthusiasm was huge. Yeah. And I, they were like, well, how are we going to do this? Like, I said, we're going to have omnibus legislation. And it, I mean, like, Pretty much all of, co- all of my colleagues said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and this is when my history dates me to in 2000. Mm-hmm. I was the only, you know, member um, besides one other state representative who's not as active in the caucus who had experienced the legislature having an omnibus bill. Mm-hmm. And so when it happened in 2000, here we are in what, 2019, 2020, hadn't happened before, but yeah. I knew it could. So. <laughs> See, that experience, that experience Ooh, was coming it's through. It's a good teacher, baby. <laughs> it's a good experience. It's a good teacher. <laughs> so speaking of all of your experience, right, you this year marks your 25th year in yeah, the Illinois wow. Senate. Um, that blows my mind. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you hope your legacy is? Mm. Well, 
for many years. Um, my passion has always been education and youth development, coming from that criminal justice juvenile place and, and lending up to how do we instill education in our, our young people, um, giving them better quality education, not just an education. They're mm -hmm. getting an education, but a quality education right. that will allow them to compete in this society. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we take a fractured child like me who's showing up Right. Who's showing up but needs some other outside resources. Yeah. So where are the social workers? Where are the you know, where is the truant officers? Where where are all of the extracurricular activities that were able to consume me? Where are they? Yeah. You know, now you're we're missing all of these distractions for children who need to be distracted mm -hmm. from things that are beyond their control. So now what do I do? So I've been living my whole career on a legacy that will be left that is clear that I that I love her. Yeah. That I'm committed to the black community that I love my people and that I want all of us to have a chance to thrive. It's unnecessary for any community, the whole community, to constantly be generations and generations and generations of poverty. I, I just felt like we deserve better. And so I want my legacy to be somebody that cared enough to stay in the fight, mm -hmm. that cared enough to be that progressive legislator when there was no word for for that, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't have a place. I didn't fit. Yeah. And then when I asked questions and challenged the systemic racism, then I became the angry black woman. Yeah. And then I didn't know what to do with myself at that point mm -hmm. other than what my mother told me. Mind your business, do your work. <laughs> so put my head back down, right? Uh -huh. And do what I need to do. I had one other piece of advice along the way that really made a big difference on helping me build my legacy. And it was from a woman named Linda Hawker. She was the secretary of the Senate. She had served through Republicans and Dems and back and forth. So she was well-liked, well-respected, and did her job amazingly well. And she walked up to me. No one else has said a word to me. I'm on like day three. Mm -hmm. And she's like, hey, kiddo, you mind if I call you kiddo? And I was like, Mm -mm. Like, call me whatever you want to call me right now. I'm just glad you're talking to me. Right? And she says, you mind if I give you a piece of advice? And I said, oh, no, please. She says, you know, a lot of people are around here doing a little too much and spreading themselves thin. Mm -hmm. She said, what is it that you like? She says, make yourself good at one thing that you can do. Make yourself an expert yeah. in a subject. I said, I love education and youth development, and I gave her a little bit of where I came from. And she says, then that's what you should focus on. And she directed me to Senator Vince DiMuzio, who at that time was on the Senate Education Committee. He was considered the dean of the Senate. He was a professor at a community college in his district, and he was just well-known and liked and loved. Mm -hmm. And so I went to him, and I said, hey, I'm going to sit next to you in education because I really want to learn a lot from you. Ms. Harker suggested that I do. And from then, it just went. So I've been a part of the Senate Education uh, Committee as a member, as a vice chair or the chair for my full 25 years in the wow. legislature. And I've been, I've become known to be uh, a champion in education and Absolutely. an expert around that subject. So I just 
the advice that I received from my mother, Ms. Hawker, has really shaped and helped me build my career. And so I would like to leave a legacy of, of, of passion and compassion, I should say, that I really loved giving in that space. I love that. And final question is, sure. who is Kimberly Lightford in your own words? <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> I think Kimberly Lyford is an around-the-way girl, okay. right? She, she loves her. Um, she loves her community. Uh, she loves music. Mm -hmm. uh, and she loves taking things that look like there is, is, you know, uh, broken, you know, shallow, and, and helping that shine that diamond in the rough. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she loves interior decorating to taking a person and doing the very same thing. Yeah. She loves to mentor. She loves, she loves giving back in that way. She loves taking that young little black girl and giving her everything that she didn't have that yeah. was missing. And then she also does that in the same adult professional space where new members come in and she would say to them, you don't have to, I've already done it for you. Yeah. And so she's been really good at helping, you know, um, share um, her with, with, with new members. So I think she's um, a teacher in so many ways um, with a different kind of degree. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of mentoring, um, I do it at the end of every show. Um, and I think uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't do it with you. I, I'm big on giving flowers. And I just want to thank you because you have been a mentor, a friend, somebody that I can call and um, will help direct me and, you know, show me where the landmines are. And I think to the point that you made earlier about sometimes that help from the generation of, uh, ahead of you isn't always there. You've been a, a huge champion of mine and a huge help to me. So I just want to oh. make sure that I give you your flowers and tell you thank you and I appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you, Corey. And I accept my flowers. <laughs> you know, we can go to lunch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, thank you. It's been a pleasure knowing you over these years. And it's like you're one of those, you're, you're one of those seeds. You know, I, I truly believe that, you know, that we ought to plant seeds and create and grow trees that we'll never sit under. Mm -hmm. And and I find you to be that person like, I believe you reap what you sow. Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. And so if I could sow into you, you know, and you could give me that energy back by being successful and constantly growing, mm -hmm. that's how I see you. Every time we talk, I'm over here, I'm doing this, <laughs> I'm busy doing that. I'm like, hey, what's next? <laughs> like, Corey, where can I find you? So <laughs> it's like you'll ask a question or want a little advice, and I give it to you, and you just run with it. Yeah. And that's what it's really about, just being able to bounce things off someone, get, a, get another perspective, you know, have that different, you know, um, feeling that maybe you just don't know, you're not aware, you haven't been in that space. Yeah. So here's this person telling you, oh, I'm not sure, or maybe so, if it does nothing more but just help you look at things differently. And that's what I've learned, too, in this fullness, you know, the, the whole across-the-aisle, Democrat, Republican kind of thing. I learned earlier on to not just constantly sit with at a table with all like minds mm -hmm. because I didn't leave with nothing but a like mind. Yeah. 
And so I've constantly put myself in positions where I could learn something differently. I could hear something differently. It would make me go back and rethink things and reshape, you know. And so I, I recognize that in you. So keep up the excellent work. And congratulations you, on this show. And thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining Thank today. Thank you.